Our scripture lesson this morning is from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not to, on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of God with the holy angels. These are our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. Typos happen. They happen even if you proofread. They happen even if you have other people proofread. They happen. One time, several years ago, when instead of a benediction, we had words of dismissal at the close of the service, the bulletin was printed and handed out with a typo. Instead of words of dismissal, right there, printed at the bottom of the page, it said, words of dismal. <laughs> Sometimes the words are dismal. Sometimes we feel discouraged. Sometimes we read the scripture passage and we affirm these are our sacred stories, but we'd rather not. We'd rather they were not. Sometimes they don't feel like they're ours, and sometimes they don't feel sacred, and sometimes we'd just rather skip it. I fear, though, that if we skip over what we don't like, what we find dismal, what confuses and frustrates or offends, then we risk missing some of the very heart of the gospel. And this passage, our passage this morning, my friends, it seems to me to be at the center of the message of the writer of the Gospel of Mark. But what is the message? What does it mean? What's going on in this passage? The passage begins with Jesus asking the disciples who people say that he is. Surely he knows. I don't think this is an effort by Jesus to do a personality profile. What he needs to know is how well it's going keeping things quiet. 
He keeps telling those he heals and those who hear his message of transformation, those who follow him, he keeps telling them to be quiet about him. But in story after story, they tell anyway. If Jesus knows who he is, and he understands his mission, then when he asks the disciples who people say he is, he's looking for insight into the rumor mill. He's looking for some idea of how much longer he might have before the empire hears about him and he's executed. And Jesus gets some interesting feedback. Some people say, you're Elijah. Elijah didn't really die, so maybe he's back. Elijah, you'll remember, was taken up to heaven in that chariot of fire. So since he never died, maybe he's here again in the form of Jesus. There are other rumors flying around. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Well, fair enough. Maybe after a little cleanup, finding those pounds he lost after the locust and honey cleanse, maybe Jesus is John the Baptist in new clothes, no more camel's hair. The disciples report that still others think Jesus is a prophet, and then Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am, and what do you think we're doing? And Peter, our friend Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus sternly orders them not to tell anyone about him. He has more to do. Let's keep this quiet. If Peter's figured it out, how many others have? And just what has Peter figured out? A common understanding of Messiah was as a conquering ruler, a Messiah who would come and overthrow the oppressive Roman Empire, a Messiah who would come on a war horse and bring peace through victory, a Messiah who would come and the great reversal would finally happen, the empty bellies would be filled and the weeping would turn to laughter and the oppression would give way to triumph. Jesus knew this popular image of Messiah. He knew it and he knew it was not who he was or how the great reversal would come about. He knew that peace would not come from war, would not come from winners and losers. It never does. And so after reminding everyone that they needed to keep the whole Messiah thing quiet, he tried to explain. He says, the son of man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the religious leaders and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. He said this openly, the suffering doesn't need to be kept quiet. In the end, it's not going to be pleasant. The Son of Man will suffer, not because God wills it, but because that's the inevitable outcome of Jesus' passion for justice, his passion for an end of oppression for a time when the last shall be first. Jesus knows where all this is going, and it's not victory at least not any victory the world would recognize as such. Jesus is not heading toward triumph. 
And Peter, poor Peter, chastises him. Surely not, Lord, surely not. We're going to win this thing. That's why I gave up everything to follow you, to win, to be victorious. They'll be rejoicing in the streets. We'll overthrow the Roman government. We'll end this rule of oppression. And for a moment, it's as though Jesus can see it. See what it might be like to return home as a hero, as the triumphant, victorious conqueror, and he's tempted. Tempted like he was in the desert at the start of his ministry. And so Jesus rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. It's not how it's going to go, Peter. It's not how it will work. Peace through victory will never last. We cannot win that way. It will never hold. And so Jesus tries to explain once more. Jesus called to the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, If any want to be my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, will save it. Jesus knows he's heading toward the cross, that he's changing the world not from the back of a war horse, but by showing another way, the way of the donkey, the way of the cross. James Cohn in The Cross and the Lynching Tree quotes theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, who said that the revelation of God's transcendent love is hidden in Jesus's suffering on the cross. And then weaving his own ideas with Niebuhr's, Cohn continues, the crucified Messiah is the final revelation of the divine character and divine purpose. Jesus was rejected because people expected a Messiah perfect in power and perfect in goodness. But the revelation of divine goodness in history must be powerless. If human power in history among races, nations, and other collectives, as well as individuals, is self-interested power, then the revelation of divine goodness in history must be weak and not strong. Christ is led as a lamb to the slaughter. Thus God's revelation transvalues human values, turning them upside down. God's revelation transvalues human values, turning them upside down. After this explanation, Cohn notes, People reject the cross because it contradicts historical values and expectations. Just as Peter challenged Jesus for saying the Son of Man must suffer, in the course of a few moments, Peter went from being the mouthpiece of God to a tool of Satan because he could not connect vicarious suffering with God's revelation. Suffering and death were not supposed to happen to the Messiah. 
He was expected to triumph over evil and not be defeated by it. How could God's revelation be found connected with the worst of deaths, the vilest death, a criminal's death on a tree of shame? Like the lynching tree in America, the cross in the time of Jesus was the most barbaric form of execution, of utmost cruelty, the absolute opposite of human value systems. It turned reason upside down. Jesus is heading toward the cross. Jesus says, I'm not a conquering hero, and we're not going to achieve victory the way you imagine. But we're also not going to let the oppressors use the cross for humiliation, to strip away human dignity, to terrify as a mechanism of control. We are making the cross our rallying cry. We're going to take it up as a way of life, a way of challenging the authorities, a way of opposing violence with non-violence, a way of justice creating. The empire embraced peace through victory. This is Roman imperial theology, that the gods give you victory through war and that victory leads to peace, the Pax Romana. Only this peace cannot last. Victory always leads to more war and violence. And if that war and violence end in victory, a new tenuous peace is established until it too is threatened by war and violence. We know this so well. You can hang your mission accomplished banners but we know that war will not bring lasting peace. 20 years of war, of momentary victories, of mission accomplished undone in a week. Perhaps the hearts and minds that needed to be changed were are our own. Revenge never brings the satisfaction we imagine it will. Violence only and always creates more violence. And so the choice is before us. The empire and its victory crown of laurels, or Jesus with his justice crown of thorns. Following Jesus means peacemaking instead of warmongering, liberation, not exploitation. Sacrifice rather than subjugation. Mercy, not vengeance. Care for the vulnerable instead of privileges for the powerful. Generosity instead of greed. Humility rather than hubris. Embrace rather than exclusion. Following Jesus is shalom, the day of peace always coming and always here as we live into it. Shalom, the day of peace achieved not through war. War will never bring lasting peace. Shalom, achieved through working together, through valuing community and connection, through loving our neighbors and our enemies. Peace 
through love. Roger Cohen writes, we know what Caesar wants. Testing ranges and new arenas while the homeless haunt church basements and the poor shuffle in the streets. But we march to a different drummer, not many rich, not many mighty, a vagabond crew in a strange land whose ways are not our ways, nor thoughts our thoughts. But let us be of good cheer. Let the word go out. The donkey is mightier than the missile, and flowers have been known to split rock. It's Caesar's week, but it's God's world, and so we take heart and rejoice. imagine these words are familiar. I love this poem, and I'm not sure we've gone through a single Lent together where they've not been read. I share them with you again this day, this day, the day after the 20-year anniversary of September 11th. We know what Caesar wants, testing ranges and new arenas while the homeless haunt church basements and the poor shuffle in the streets. Caesar, corrupt power, systemic racism, oppression, the impulse toward revenge, toward violence, toward the narrowing of borders, the pushing out and the making of other. It's been Caesar's week. It's always, in some form or another, Caesar's week. What we cannot lose sight of what we must live into is it's God's world. Jesus shows us about a realm of God, about real lasting victory, about a kingdom of equals. He shows us and teaches us, and thus his passion for the kingdom does not die with his body. We continue the mission. We take up not victory banners, but palm branches. We take up the cross. These words are not dismal, and they do not dismiss us either. These words, I hope, inspire us. They compel us to follow in the upside-down victory of Jesus where the donkey is mightier than the missile, where flowers split rock, where it may be Caesar's week, but it is always God's world. And so we take heart and rejoice. Amen.